When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu. And what we're doing this time round is something a bit different, because by the time you hear this recording, indeed you might hear it in the future, but basically a year ago, Russia invaded with a full battle force into the country of Ukraine. Now, I did an episode about this about a month into the conflict. So if you look, I, this is one of the few occasions where I'm returning to a topic in the podcast. But obviously, normally it's all like, hey, let's do Dungeons and Dragons. And then, you know, I'll sort of like lead on to various things like Kriegspiel and sort of like simulations of battles and so on and so forth. Or I might have done one on the English TV show and talk about the Wild West and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, if you like a lot of the pop culture I do can end up being sort of kind of light, but you can end up quite serious as well. Whereas this, I'm starting with something where, you know, what is popular culture? And, and therefore, this is ongoing rather than historical. But I absolutely think that what's happening in Ukraine today is a reflection of the battle of hearts and minds and the modern world of pop culture and the 24-hour news cycle, which is definitely something that I would love to talk to you guys about, you know, have sort of like a deeper understanding of that. And also, it's an opportunity to sort of compare this conflict with other, other conflicts as well, and as an understanding of like, as I've said on multiple times before, the problem with history is we look at it the wrong way round. And as we're seeing a piece of important history right now, it's a reminder of that. So I'm going to pull all of this together, along with obviously factual information about what's been going on in Ukraine. And I really hope you enjoy this slightly more unusual version of the podcast. So going back a year ago, I remember sitting there with my wife hearing now, I want you to cast your mind back maybe 14 months ago, because before Christmas even, Vladimir Putin was moving his troops around a lot around the Ukrainian border. And this was seen as potentially more Russian saber-rattling. Now, again, I've mentioned this, mentioned this in several different podcasts, but technically the Ukraine war did not start in 2022. It started in 2014, because what happened was Suddenly, out of nowhere, these little green men, as they were referred to, basically these paramilitary units, 
just started appearing in Crimea and also in the very eastern parts of Ukraine. And basically they turned into semi-autonomous states, clearly backed by Moscow, and indeed in 2022 they were formally absorbed into Russia, but that wasn't recognised by anybody. That was a whole thing, basically. But to Putin's credit, please allow me to finish this podcast before you cancel me, the thing about Putin, which had got him a lot of praise back home, is he was always one step ahead of everybody else on planet Earth. He'd had the Wagner Group, this bunch of mercenaries who'd been appearing in places like Syria and multiple sub-Saharan African countries, basically some of the most odious regimes, the places where the UN wouldn't dare go, and certainly no Western country would happily back these kind of dictatorships. Well, they they got money, they want to give it to somebody to get some military force, so that's what the Wagner Group did, and it's about time that in very early 2023, the Wagner Group has now been recognised as basically an international criminal organisation, because that's what it always was. However, it does raise the interesting point about mercenaries, which I will come back to. And again, bit of history there. These dirty little wars that ended up enriching Russia, that, you know, Putin was in there, and there was a lot of tutting in the UN, but nothing serious actually happened. Then, as I mentioned in the World Cup episode, Russia had the World Cup in 2018. They had the Sochi Winter Olympics as well. So it's, you know, a focal point of international best in practice in terms of sport. Putin was putting Russia on the sort of global stage with those sorts of major, major events. It's, let's not underestimate them. And yet at the same time, he's got a paramilitary organization carrying out war crimes in the world and nobody's stopping him from running the, the World Cup or what have you. Then, of course, there's been these political assassinations, arguably the most sensational in the UK, involving various radioactive elements to try and assassinate people, including going to Salisbury. So you've got all of that going on. And again, I mean, when people say Putin threatening to use nuclear weapons, well, a radioactive poison is a nuclear weapon. It's just not a weapon of mass destruction. But saying that, though, on both occasions, they're, they're so lethal and sort of so potent in their concentrated radioactivity, which is in essence a poison to us human beings, that other people trying to handle these agents or spotting it where it was in a restaurant in London in terms of the Alexander Litvinenko poisoning. They could literally track the radiation back through London and could work out pretty quickly who actually did it. And these are not obviously over-the-counter poisons. This is clearly a sign that these assassinations have been sanctioned by Putin and the Moscow government. So all of this is going on and he's always one step ahead. If you like, the pigeons haven't really come home to roost. Yes, there were a few sanctions after the 2014 semi-invasion of Ukraine and a lot of anger, but the point is it was done. It doesn't matter how angry America or Germany are, it's done. What are you going to do? You're going to go to war over something that de facto is already happened on the ground and you've got to shift all your concentrations from basically the Pacific and what's happening with China, and you've now got to completely rearrange your military organization, not worth it. And you're also probably going to lose as well, because the Russians have this mighty 
force and they're already embedded and you know the, the Wagner group is performing very well in a very bloody merciless way but the point is they're good at killing people so all of that means that when Putin was maneuvering his soldiers around the borders of Ukraine there was genuinely a sense of disbelief amongst most of the western military spy agencies and intelligence agencies that he's actually going to do it because the big difference about Ukraine and many other wars is you could tie them up as basically the Vietnam War was in essence a civil war. It's just it happens to be that the communist parties of the world, the communist powers, backed the North and America and various Western powers backed the South. Same thing with Korea. And it's very rare to have an outright sovereign nation invading another sovereign nation. I have several friends who, who are Russian and they are very anti-Putin, but they also love their country. And one of them said, shortly after the invasion, it's like, why is the West so upset about this? They weren't so upset about Saudi Arabia invading Yemen. And my response to them was, yeah, but that wasn't in Europe. You know, this is the dichotomy that we have, particularly if you're liberal minded. It's like, look at the mess that the allied nations and NATO technically was the military force in Afghanistan. Look at the mess. Look at how it wasn't mission accomplished over 20 years and trillions of dollars spent. Thousands of people have died. Huge disruption across the whole of this nation. For what? But then the Taliban come to power again. They stop the women going to school and, and all that stuff. You know, they, they're executing people now and basically doing everything they said they wouldn't do now that they're back in power again. And there's a famine in Afghanistan. But there is this sort of general feeling of that's terrible, but what are we going to do? We're not going to give the Taliban money to solve this problem. That's, you know, they are clearly the bad guys. So what are you going to do? Are you just going to sit there on the sidelines and tutting? Or are we going to go back in there again and see if we can fix it in another 20 years? So that, look, I don't have a solution to any of this stuff, but I'm just saying that it is genuinely complicated. If people say it isn't complicated, there was neo-imperialism. Well, the thing about empires is, they don't tend to leave, and that's exactly what Joe Biden did in 2021 and got heavily criticized for it. So all of this is sort of swirling around, is Putin going to go in? Surely he's not. Maybe he's going to get some concessions from Zelensky, this relatively new president in Ukraine, best known for being harassed by basically various envoys from America under Donald Trump to try and get dirt on Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son. I mean, this is insane. There is this insane sort of like press conference with Vladimir Zelensky looking slightly confused with these Americans thinking that he's got like the smoking gun on this sort of semi-imaginary sort of sort of con thing that that happened. Now, again, not trying to pick sides politically, but it did seem to be an awful lot of smoke and mirrors on that one. And as I said in the previous episode about Ukraine. Vladimir Zelensky's background was comedian, so there is no indication that he could effectively be a wartime leader. And yet, Putin did the unthinkable and actually invaded. And I remember sitting there with my wife, hearing that news on day one, and just feeling sick to my stomach. Both of us lay there in bed that night, just staring at the ceiling. We couldn't, couldn't sleep properly. It's like, ugh, he's done it again, you know. In the space of a week, he'll capture the whole of Ukraine. And if anything, that's only going to embolden him. And then, well, what's next? Is it going to be Latvia or Estonia or Poland? There is this sort of like incredible sense of like, ugh, the bad guys won. 
I'm whatever, about 10 minutes into this and there's a swirling turmoil going on. Hopefully I'm sort of reminding you of those gut-wrenching days. But then the unthinkable happened. Even the greatest optimist did not imagine that the Russian army would perform so abysmally. And the Ukrainians initially, with basically nothing, performed way above the capabilities of what was expected of them. And so, particularly the push for Kyiv, that started right at the beginning. And you may remember that 40-mile convoy of trucks trying to get down to Kyiv. The critical thing was the airport just north of Kyiv. The, basically the Spetsnaz, the Russian equivalent of special forces like, like the, the Rangers or Delta Force. You know, Putin was smart. He dropped in via helicopters his best troops to capture this airport so that he could then create an air bridge. He could start bringing in stuff through air transport planes and very quickly take the capital, cut the head off the enemy government. And now he's at least got half of Ukraine and can probably keep pushing west. But... They fought tooth and nail. Make no mistake about it. The Russians fought hard to capture that airport. At one point, it looked like it was going to fall to them, but it didn't. The Ukrainians clung on by their fingernails. And at that point, everything went wrong in terms of the logistics for Russia. And at that point, basically till the end of March, so basically for about a month or so, it looked like the Russians would be just getting closer and closer to Kiev. And in the end... Somebody very smartly in Russia clearly pushed back against Putin and went, look, this isn't going to work. We're all completely bogged down. We're trying to fight on three or four different fronts. Let's just leave northern Ukraine and let's concentrate on the east and slowly bash our way across the country that way. And pretty much since March of 2022, that's what the Russians have been doing and been doing a terrible job of it. You obviously kind of know the story. Then we start getting Western forces sort of sending in various bits of equipment. And the key thing, you may recall early on, is this is all defensive. This is all defensive capabilities. You know, they get javelin missiles, which can knock out tanks, but you can't use them in the sense of trying to attack a position. And stinger missiles to shoot down aircraft. And literally body armor. Canada sent thousands of pieces of body armor and helmets and things like that. And there was also... Like, well, we will train your troops for free, kind of like that. You know, Britain sort of instantly sort of said, yeah, send, you give us 14,000 people and we'll train them. So all of that could be argued because there was this constant worry about if you provoke Putin, if you put him into too much of a corner, oh my God, what's he going to do next? And Macron was perhaps the most vocal Western leader saying that. And logically, he's right. But Macron wasn't reading the mood of the West. This is naked aggression going on. There is no doubt who the invader is, unless you're Russian, in which case you're being told a whole bunch of lies. But here's the thing, again, going back to a Russian friend of mine, when, you know, well, you do know that Ukraine is one of the most corrupt countries in the world. That's true. But that doesn't give Russia the right to invade. And also Russia is one of the other most corrupt countries in the world. And indeed, in late January of 2023, Zelensky actually ended up starting to get rid of some of his top people in his cabinet because they were clearly skimming money off the top and driving around in Porsches and all that kind of stuff you would associate with a corrupt regime. It is clear that Zelensky is not corrupt. It is clear he wants to win this war. And what is amazing is pretty much from the beginning he was doing these fabulous sound bites. You know, in Britain, we keep comparing him to Churchill, and it's a good comparison in the sense that 
you know, Churchill had never been Prime Minister before. He'd always done good speeches. And yes, he did actually have a military background. But nobody knew he'd be quite the man. He was quite an old man when he became Prime Minister early on in World War Two. And it's the same thing with Zelensky. You know, he, he ran on basically an anti-corruption platform to become president. The other big joke about this is is his this hugely wildly popular Ukrainian show where he was basically playing a teacher who in essence accidentally becomes the president of Ukraine. And they stopped filming that when he accidentally became the president of Ukraine. I mean that's a basic story to tell. I mean at some point there's going to be a movie about all of this. And I've heard a bunch of sort of satirical comedians say, this puts all of us to shame. You know, we're always sort of like railing at the government or sort of like saying something funny that's happened about strikes or what have you but could i run a country that's being invaded and sort of do these kind of amazing speeches in a different language no no i couldn't and one of the first times i realized we're onto something special with Zelensky is when america very kindly said hey look do you want to move here you know you'll be safe here and then you could be the, the government in exile like so many other governments have throughout history and he said I need ammunition, not a ride. And that was that was just chef's kiss. It's like, that is a perfect line. And, and he keeps doing it with various different sort of speeches about certain situations. He makes them short and snappy, and it works so well. Perhaps the pinnacle was in December of 22, when he arrived in America. And what I found interesting is suddenly the internet was awash with, I, I, I don't know, dubious accounts. People with like 12 followers or something like that, or, or you know, very new accounts or what have you, or, or people who just have pretty intense views on the world anyway, sort of say, oh, look at that. He's just going to America for like, you know, a bit of a, a jolly. And it's like, really? He was there for 36 hours. He wasn't there for sightseeing. But what really impressed me with that is, first of all, he's talking to you know both the senate and you know the basically the whole of the capital there so he was doing it in a, a second language he was doing it in about as high pressure situation you can get but he then brought out the flag the flag that had come from the soldiers of bakhmut just 24 hours earlier which bakhmut was just the center of such fierce fighting basically it still is with it signed by all these people what was the cost of that flag you know, in American terms, five bucks, okay? The flag cost nothing. The flag was even graffitied on. The flag was just a cheap nylon flag. But what did it mean? Everything. This is a battlefield flag. This is a, a symbol of the fighting against the injustices going on. It was pure theatre. And when I wrote an article, what I found interesting, when I wrote an article about it, about how well-constructed the speech was, I wasn't picking sides, and I made a point at the beginning of the article, it's like, look, just because you're a good public speaker doesn't automatically mean that you're on the right side of history. I did put this in the article, but it is worth remembering Adolf Hitler was a good public speaker, but we can all agree, agree he was a terrible human being and a terrible regime, okay? Fine. So that, that was my point to try and sort of like calm people down, but people still railing against me because it was theatre. But that's what you need to do in those situations. You don't want to have a, bring out a boring Excel spreadsheet. That's not going to inspire people. He was there to try and get the message to Congress and the Senate. It's like, keep giving us the weapons because if we lose, this is going to end up being more expensive than if we sort of like collapse. You know, so in other words... We're fighting for the West, and they're not wrong. That's a very sort of jingoistic point of view. 
just quickly in terms of this 24-hour news cycle, trying to keep a news headline. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. In the sort of like the conversation, it's really, really difficult as it moves along. Just ask Harry and Meghan about that, for example. You know, hot news for like five days and then nobody's talking about it. So how do you get the West and particularly America to keep thinking about the war? And in regards to the hearts and minds and PR, Ukraine is clearly best in world. You've got Zelensky doing great speeches. You've got well-spoken Ukrainians always taking interviews. It could be for a podcast. It could be for a, a newspaper. It could be for CNN or whatever. There's always somebody available to talk there's always footage what i found interesting with the bbc is they kept talking about this invasion but for the first i'm going to say three weeks all we saw was people basically cowering in basements where's the actual invasion where are the tanks where is the shooting going on it was interesting that other news broadcasters managed to get to the front lines faster than the bbc but the BBC did get that footage and, and you know, there, it is interesting that, you know, however terrible war is, seeing soldiers firing guns and things like that, seeing a helicopter fly overhead is visually interesting, more interesting than any politician just standing there talking. So you, they've got the visuals, they've got the story, they've got the narrative, they win the Eurovision Song Contest as well. You know, there's just always something to talk about with Ukraine and that's why they've been able to still be front of mind a year on. Pretty much the only other thing that's been able to do that in in recent history has been COVID. 
And it was ironic that it was Ukraine that actually knocked COVID off the front pages. But what's Russia's argument? And this is something else that, again, I, I keep picking my Russian friend to sort of like show you there is another way of looking at this. And to re-emphasize, this person hates Putin. But, you know, they were saying that sometimes there's double standards. The, the time I was talking to them, there was this news story of some footage of some Ukrainian soldiers capturing a Russian and then shooting him. And that's obviously, that's a war crime. That's against the Geneva Convention. Once prisoners of wars are captured, it is your duty to keep them out of harm's way and certainly not start executing them. You can, in theory, take them to court and charge them for specific crimes. After all, that's what the Nuremberg trials were after World War II. And there have already been a few of those trials done by Ukraine. But that was obviously wrong. However, this was coming out about the same time as Bucha. Do you remember this area that they, the Ukrainians managed to capture? They found this town and they found literally hundreds of civilians had been executed and killed. And every time Ukraine recaptures an area like Kherson, for example, the city that they recaptured towards the end of 2022, you know, one the only major sort of like district's capital that the Russians have managed to capture in the whole of the war, they managed to lose. And every time they get the, the civilians to talk to, it's the same story again and again. There's the intimidation, there's the torture, there's the disappearances, there's the threats, there's the stealing and looting. This is not a one-off thing. This is clearly just what the Russian army does. So when the Ukrainians seem to have recorded them executing a singular Russian soldier, which is one too many, you know, my friend was saying there isn't a lot of emphasis on that. And I said, OK, but... Basically, the response by the military press office was, this looks bad, we're going to look into this. In other words, we're taking this allegation seriously. Whereas, when there's all these independent reporters showing the dead bodies in Bucha, the response from the Russian government, it's faked. These are all actors. And so they're not even willing to pretend that they could, you know, there is no way, never in history, are you going to find an army that didn't do something wrong? Okay, the point about war is it's already breaking the norms of, of morality, if you like. And so, you know, the, the Allies were definitely the good guys in World War II, and yet you get things like the bombing of Dresden, the nuking of two cities in Japan, and so on and so forth. These are not good moments in history. So for Russia to pretend that every bad allegation is wrong just shows how ridiculous their position is. Also, talking about Zelensky and his cabinet as a bunch of drug-addicted Nazis. It's like, obviously, Zelensky, as most people know, is Jewish. And the response from Russia is like, why, can you say a, a Jew can't be a Nazi? No, no, they can't. It's kind of in the job title, really, to be honest. But that's ludicrous. You could say they're threatening our borders. You know, again seeing World War II keeps being used as an analogy in this war, even Hitler came up with a weak excuse, sort of like a border violation by Poland to trigger his invasion of Poland. You know, so even Adolf Hitler realised you need a fig leaf over naked aggression, and Putin can't even do that. However, using another World War II analogy is the Nazis would refer to the Red Army of the Soviet Union as an Asiatic horde. The reality is that the vast majority of soldiers fighting in it were Slavic, you know, in other words, white in terms of their ethnicity. OK, however, because the war was so bloody on the Eastern Front, quite literally, millions died, millions were captured, millions were casualties and, and wounded. 
So by the time you add up all of those, towards the end of the war, the Soviet Union was running out of, of Slavic men and even a few women, and so that they were pulling from further east into what was Russia, places like Siberia, Mongolia, Uzbekistan. These places are ethnically different to the Slavic peoples around places like Moscow and St. Petersburg. And by the end, there's this great book. I encourage you to read it. If you want a kind of reassessment of World War II, there's Norman Davies' Europe at War. The, the subheader header is 1939 to 1945, no simple victory. And he points out things like, well, if Britain went to war to protect Poland, and by the end of the war, Poland is under Soviet rule, we lost. We didn't do, carry out our, our aim, but we kind of sort of changed the aim as we moved along about the destruction of the Nazis and obviously, you know, the finding of the death camps and so on and so forth. So that's an interesting point. But the other point he makes is by the end of World War II, the Red Army consisted of 49% Asiatic peoples, like, as I said, the, the Tajiks and the Mongols and etc. So, I mean, literally these other ethnicities. So, what had started as basically an entire Slavic army, virtually vast, vast majority Slavic army, had changed its cultural makeup hugely because of what happened to the Nazis. So if you like, the Nazis had created a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, flipping into Ukraine, we have another self-fulfilling prophecy in the sense that Ukraine has, as I said in the previous episode, so look, if you, I'm not going to repeat myself, please go back to the first episode about Ukraine. You'll find it on the feed about a year ago, well, about 11 months ago, really. And I point out the incredibly harrowing history of the Ukraine in the 20th century. The other thing I didn't say then, which I'll say now, is there's this whole the Ukraine, Ukraine issue. Back when it became fully independent in the early 1990s, a lot of people, including me, and even newscasters would refer to the Ukraine. And what's really happened in the last few years, even before the war, is you get this feeling of like, drop the the, because the is a region. You know, we talk in Britain about, for example, the West Country. Now, that's clearly not England. It's part of England. And when you talk about the Ukraine, it sounds like it's a county, a subdivision, a state within Russia. So just by the using the the definite article can make things a bit controversial there. So the point is, Ukraine did have its own church, for example, but its church was very much looking to the Russian Orthodox Church. And it did have its own language, but it's very much based on Russian. So there are lots and lots of similarities. This is why there are so many people who have like got family on both sides of the border of this war. And why there are a lot of Russians who are uneasy about this war as well. Or special military operation where literally you, you could be given eight years in prison if you call it a war in Russia. You know, how insane is that? And how is it anything other than a war when clearly tens of thousands of Russian men have died in it? I mean, this is a bloodier war than the Soviet Union invading Afghanistan. There's that country again back in the 1980s. Okay, so my, my point here is that one of the things that Putin was saying at the beginning is that Ukraine was trying to ban the Russian language and sort of like ethnic Russians were being sort of attacked in the east of the country and all this stuff. And I have to emphasize this. None of this was true. There is no evidence for it. And it's interesting that even the Russian government has no... You'd think if they had evidence, they'd be flashing it on TV all the time. Look at this going on there. But of course... 
what's happening in Ukraine right now is there are lots of people who can speak both languages who are now seeing the destruction wrought by Russia refusing to speak Russian, refusing to teach their kids Russian. And so it's become one of these self-fulfilling prophecies. Why would anybody want to speak the language of the enemy? And there can be no doubt that, and I've said this in, I probably never said this on a podcast, but I've said this in some of my talks, that it is interesting that pretty much every country has like a defining battle or war that, you know, has just sort of become mythologized in the fabric of understanding the nation's point of view of a country. In America, there's two. There's, you know, the War of Independence, which is actually, in a weird way, it's it's technically, historically more important, but it is less focused than the Civil War, which has been such a touch point, even in the 21st century, even though it's from the 19th century. It's like, you know, we've had 150 years to get over this, guys, but no, clearly people still fighting it. Battles like Gettysburg are almost legendary in America, like the Battle of Hastings in Britain. And from wherever you are, every country kind of has that war, that battle, that military leader who sort of everyone gets a little bit swoony over, shall we say. And there's no doubt that what's happening in Ukraine right now is this is what's going to happen. Because what's interesting with those those battles and wars that have been fought that define these nations, it's not always a victory. Although it is looking like Ukraine is going to basically... I mean, exactly where it's going to finish, and I'll be coming on to that in a moment, but basically it's clear that Ukraine is going to survive and Russia is so much more diminished. And this is the problem for Russia. It's like for pretty much 100 years, the whole world has been scared of Russia slash the Soviet Union, and Putin has been so upset about the diminished power of Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union. He basically thinks the whole world's laughing at them. We're not. We never were, you know, but we would love you to play nice with the rest of the world. Thank you very much. That he thought that this would be his game, his his sort of like the, the thing that would be his defining moment. It would be like his Gettysburg, but obviously it isn't. And he's now in this incredibly tough situation. And again, please, I'm not asking anybody to feel sorry for Putin, but what do you do? You have been whipping your country into a frenzy for years over this issue you have been talking about and and, you know if there's one thing that russia likes it's a strong leader and right now putin looks weak so with that in mind what's his next move and this is where i come to the problem with history is we look at it from the wrong way round and that is right now you don't know how this war's going to end nobody does there are some sort of theories, if you like, and, and if you like, one of the most important ones is, in essence, the literal bridge that links Russia to the Crimean Peninsula, which Russia really, really wants to keep hold of, not because of the whole peninsula, but because of its massive naval base at Sevastopol, which, you know, was ironically something that we were fighting over in the Crimean War, which was predates the American Civil War by 10 years, by the way. So, yeah, that's how important Sevastopol was. It was fought over in World War II as well. And yet, it's not properly supplied. This is one of the reasons why he needed to fight this war, because Crimea was slowly, very slowly, running out of stuff. The ferries and bridge from Russia to Crimea wasn't good enough. And what he has right now is a land bridge. There's basically land all the way from Russia down the south of Ukraine into Crimea, which currently the Russians own, but 
clearly all these tanks that are being hired or being brought in by the West to Ukraine is they clearly need to sort of punch a hole through the Russian defences. And if they can do it, if they can get to the coast, if they can cut off the Crimea from the rest of their territory, at that point, it's pretty much game over for Russia in the Crimea and Putin cannot afford to lose the Crimea. Now, maybe he goes crazy and massively ramps things up, you know, full mobilization of Russia, although I'm not sure that's going to help because they just so simply don't have enough tanks, ammunition, guns, etc. to arm a new million man army or something like that. You know, dare I use the, the nuclear word? But again, how would that help? As soon as he fires a nuke, the West will give give Ukraine anything they want and a nuke is not going to necessarily end the war either you know he nukes Kiev. that's not where the, the soldiers are and the soldiers are also close to the russian soldiers that you just killed your army as well it makes no sense tactically and militarily to actually launch a nuke but maybe it's something he can sort of boast back home but again at that point it's pretty much game over for putin so nobody is quite sure how any of this is going to end and another example is you know about how this is all dripping in history is this being i've mentioned it before tanks and it was even sort of a part of an episode of the warhammer one where i talk about the lehman rust tank is the fact that what was interesting is tanks going back to what i said at the beginning of this podcast you know we're only going to give give ukraine defensive weapons a tank is an offensive weapon but by 2023 tanks were able to be brought in now what was interesting is clearly this was very very political and all of the allies were sort of talking to each other and britain went first with 14 challenger tanks and that caused a little bit of a ripple but of course 14 tanks isn't going to make a difference but the point is this what the ukraine really wanted were the german-made leopard twos they are the, by far the most ubiquitous tank in europe and they're very good as well. Uh, we all tend to know that the Germans are quite good at building tanks. But Germany was very edgy. Because you know what? German tanks have rolled through Ukraine to fight Russians before. And they were the bad guys at that point. But at least with the challengers coming from Britain, that took the edge off. But then, just to sort of like double help the Germans, the Americans then announced that they're going to send some Abrams tanks. Now, they're excellent tanks, but they're incredibly technical. They also don't want to get too too bogged down in the detail here but also their engines are just real sort of like hoovers they're like real sort of like vacuums in terms of just sucking up fuel because they're sort of like jet propelled potentially the best tanks in the world but they are probably not what the ukrainians need but the americans said here's have 30 of them and that finally opened the floodgates and finally the germans went okay not only are we going to send leopards but we'll allow other countries who own leopard twos to send them to ukraine and what I found interesting was how angry Russia got at that. Not at the British. You know, I don't feel seen. OK, they weren't so angry at the Americans, but they were furious at the Germans, which, again, plays into a bit of history there, but also shows you probably how worried they are. It's like, yeah, they're good tanks and there's loads of them. I mean, again, the, the British ones, thank you, but that's not enough. And also for the American ones, again, that's not enough. But, you know, they could end up with getting... 100 plus leopard twos and those are definitely all, all three of these types of european tanks can outperform like things like the t-72 and the new t-90 which the russians love but you know is completely unbattle tested and apparently is is riddled with with problems and so i go back to a very very right wing guy online who i 
pretty much disagree with everything he's ever said except this one line, which he said, We used to think that Russia had a world-class army. It turns out it's just a gas station with nukes. And that's a pretty good analogy of the problem that Russia has. It has been so gripped by its own corruption for so long, now that it actually has to fight a proper war, it is clearly not fit for purpose. And no amount of bombing of civilians, no amount of rhetoric on TV is going to fix the fact that the morale, momentum, and the equipment is with the Ukrainians. And if you look at history, that means the other side's invariably going to lose. So history can guide you you know, the the winners will be Ukraine, but exactly what the peace treaty looks like, who knows? And does this trigger something even bigger in terms of international crises? Who knows? Does this lead to a overthrow of Putin and Russia descending into civil war? Who knows? Hope not. Hope none of those things happen. I hope ultimately common sense prevails and basically Ukraine gets all of its land back and Putin can sit there licking his wounds, but sort of railing in with the media against the West or something. That's it from me. As always, want to get your thoughts on Twitter? I'm at Gem on Twitter. Please do the usual. Click subscribe. Tell somebody about it. Thank you very much. And as always, there'll be another episode coming soon. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.